All right. Today we are continuing in the <clears throat> book of Malachi. And uh, for those, some of you know, about a month ago, we uh, concluded an online Bible study where we explored some of the aspects around the second coming of Christ. We were really focusing on Matthew chapter 24 and then kind of expanding out of Matthew 24 because there's lots of different uh, things, uh, theologies, ideas, concepts, which have been formed around uh, Matthew chapter 24, which Jesus deals very uh, specifically with his second coming. And if you're part of that discussion, you know that I find, while I find the uh, topic interesting, I find it also a bit frustrating that throughout history, people have believed that they have the details so worked out as to exactly how it's going to go when Christ comes back, that if you don't agree with them on all the details, they will even question whether or not you're a Christian. And I find that, and that wasn't the attitude of anyone within our Bible study, by the way, but just, you know, throughout history, it's been this way. Entire denominations has formed around specific ideas just around the second coming of Christ. And I find this strange. I find this strange because the people that were waiting for the first coming of Christ had very similar scriptures that they could read that would help them to anticipate what it would what the event of the coming of the Messiah would look like, what it would mean, how it would go. And they all had their opinions on what to expect. And yet we know, because we have it in the scripture, when the Messiah came, he was rejected. He was rejected by many of those who had studied for this, who had planned for this, who had set their hopes on this, because he didn't fit their expectations. And in hindsight, it's easy to look into the Old Testament and see how Jesus actually did fit the expectations. But they didn't, have, they didn't have that kind of hindsight. And I understand that now we have the Holy Spirit to guide us, so we're in a bit of a different place. But then the question comes up, if we all have the same Holy Spirit, why do we have such widely different opinions, right? Haven't you wondered that about a lot of things? If we have the same Holy Spirit, why do we have so many different opinions about things theological? I think that's a, that's a sermon for a different day. It's not the sermon for today. But one of the things that we can agree on when you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, both in the coming of the Messiah the first time, the first advent, which is what the word means. Advent means the coming of a great event or person. We're going to be celebrating that in December. Whether we're talking about the first advent or the second advent, there's a calling over and over again in the scriptures of people to be ready. They need to be ready for this coming Messiah. And why is there this call of readiness? Well, because if you're spiritually ready for the event, then the coming of the Messiah will be great. It'll be a glorious time. But if you're not ready, it'll be a terrifying time. And so Malachi in chapter 3, which is where we're at, if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, we're going to begin chapter 3. He begins to speak, and he speaks as God. As a prophet, he speaks as God in this chapter. And he says this, See, I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. 
He will sit as a refiner, a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who bring offerings of righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord. As in the former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers. Against those who defraud laborers of their wages. Who oppress widows and the fatherless. Who deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, if you've ever read passages about the second coming of Christ, you'll see, you'll see that these, this passage has kind of a familiar tone to it. It kind of has a familiar kind of feel. But it's not quite as explosive as the passages that are talking about the second coming of Christ. Let me give you an example. This is an example out of 2 Peter. It says this about the second coming of Christ. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of the Lord and speed its coming. That day will bring about a destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So you can see that there's, there's kind of a similar tone between these two passages but the New Testament one is kind of more explosive, right? It talks about the roaring of the heavens. You know, everything is destroyed. Whereas the first one is talking about the, the Messiah coming as a refiner, as a, as a person with the launderer's soap to make people clean. And there's a reason for that. Because the first coming of Christ was a more humble coming. It was the coming of Christ. This is what we're going to celebrate in December. The coming of the Messiah in this manger. You know, very quiet kind of beginning, which then builds to this idea of of him being our final sacrifice once and for all, the righteous for the righteous, unrighteous. We just celebrated that with communion. Whereas the second coming of Christ, there is going to be no quietness about it. The scripture tells us that the second coming of Christ will be in such a manner that the whole world will know about it. There's going to be no quietness about it. Whereas the first one comes to prepare and to set a, set a path in place for salvation, the second one comes like a train into a station, it's coming loud, it's coming fast, and there's no stopping it. And so that's a difference that is there. But as we've going through, been going through uh, the book of Malachi, we've said, we've shared that this was written about 70 years after the exiles had returned from their, their exile in Babylon. And by the time Malachi is writing, the walls of the of city of Jerusalem has been, have been rebuilt, the temple has been rebuilt, but the people are very apathetic in their faith. All the things that they were hoping for and expecting really haven't come to fruition. And they're beginning to wonder, why bother? Why are we doing this? Why are we waiting for this expected Messiah? Because we've gone through so much as a people. And just like typical human beings, they're, they're not really looking back and seeing the miracle of the fact they still exist as a people, even after their country had been completely crushed and their people had been taken into exile and they've been allowed to come back. The fact they even exist is a miracle. But they're, like most of us, when God does things in our life, we tend to take it for granted. And they're like, yeah, that's not really what I was expecting. I was expecting something different. 
And so this is this weariness in their spirituality, this weariness in wanting to be the people of God is something that the prophet Malachi, he addresses before uh, we get into the passage we looked at today. We went over this a little bit last week. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And instead of saying, well, then we repent, the people fire back, how? How have we wearied him? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? Both of these are said with a certain amount of sarcasm. These are the attitudes which are similar to people who would say today, well, if God is so loving, then why is there so much suffering in the world? If God is so powerful, why is there evil in the world? We get asked those questions. Well, the, Hebrew, the Jews were asking that same question. It seems like God favors the, good, the evil over the good. And Malachi responds to this with a word of promise, but it's a promise that has an edge to it. He says the people need to be ready because things aren't going to continue in the way that they've been going. And so again, as a prophet, Malachi speaks as God, and, he, and, he, and there's a lot of nuance to what he says. He says, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. So first of all, God speaks in this me form. I am coming. I am going to be in the, there's going to be a messenger that prepares the way for me. So what does this tell us about the Messiah? That he's going to be God among us. And then, then he goes third person. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And this is what we see in Jesus. Jesus is, he says he's not the father, but at the same time he'll say, when you've seen me, you've seen the father. You know, Jesus is the word of God made flesh. He's not the infinite spirit of the Father, because you can't take the infinite and put it into the finite. But he is the very character and nature of God among us. And so this is an obvious prophetic verse regarding Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He doesn't call him Jesus because it's prophetic. It hasn't happened yet. Malachi is written about 400 years before the coming of the Christ. But it's a complex verse, because here the prophet speaks as God. And then he also speaks as telling the one that the Lord you are seeking will come to the temple. And the messenger before the Lord, if you've been to Sunday school, you know the answer to this. Who was it? John the Baptist. Yeah. And the people were, you know, this, is, this was not the expectation. Remember, they go out and they, they ask him, they go, well, are you the Messiah? They even thought, well, maybe this is the Messiah. And John says, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm the one that's coming before. I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness, which is actually out of the book of Isaiah. And then after John the Baptist, we have the word of God made flesh, Jesus Christ coming. And we know the stories. He enters his temple more than once when we read the scriptures. He enters the temple when he's a boy. And he's about 12 years old. And, he, and remember, he gets lost and his parents are looking for him. And they find him in the temple and he's talking with the, with the priest. He enters the temple with a whip at one point. He drives out the money changers and all that. He enters the temple the last week of his life on earth, uh, well, before the crucifixion. Uh, to teach and to preach, and of course that's where he gets he gets very uh, he gets into a lot of conflict with the Pharisees, and leads to his crucifixion. But what he's doing in all these things is that Jesus Christ is demonstrating how this disappointing world is going to be set back into order. Because have no doubt, the people at the time of Christ were disappointed with their lot. You know, we're the chosen people of God, and yet we are under the thumb of a pagan government. We're the chosen people of God, and while this temple is pretty impressive that's being built, it's being built by Herod, and they didn't regard Herod to be a true Jew. 
that he was kind of a, a fake and put into power by the Romans. We've talked about in the past the politics that went into putting the high priest into place, that he was actually, the high priest was actually chosen and put into place by the pagan Roman governor. It'd be like someone who's not even a believer choosing who gets to be the pastor of this church. Would you be happy with that? Probably not. Well, the Jews weren't happy with the idea that their high priest was chosen and put into place by a pagan Roman governor. And so when Jesus comes, he begins to model how this disappointing world is going to be put right. He models it by healing, that in the, in the, in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, this coming kingdom, there is going to be no death or disease. He does it by caring for the poor, that in this coming kingdom of God, there is going to be no one left behind. There is going to be no one that is, in the poor, that is desperately poor while the wealthy and the rich are kind of having their parties around them. He, he does it by the, the whip and driving people out of the temple. That in this coming kingdom of God, religion is not going to be used to exploit people. It's not going to be used as a money-making scheme, which we see all the time in the world today. And so what Jesus is doing is he's modeling what the coming kingdom of God is going to be like. And he models it through his actions. He's putting things, he's showing how things are going to be put back into order. But this being things being put back into order wasn't welcomed by everybody. And that's what we read in the Gospels. The Pharisees, a lot, in fact, it was mostly the religious people that didn't like the way Jesus was putting back in things, things back into order. Because they felt in doing so, he was violating the law. And to them, the law was more important. The law is what kept order, not the spirit of the law, not grace, not caring for the alien. And in this case, when, the, when Malachi talks about the alien, we're not talking about E.T., you know, we're talking about foreigners, which is actually, you know, in, in the time we're in right now, he cared for the foreigners. It was important to God to care for the poor. It was important for God that we be righteous in the way that we live. And he's talking in Malachi's time, he's saying that. And he knows, Malachi knows, and God knows that this, this coming of the Messiah isn't going to be welcomed by all. And he says this, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner of pure, a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who are able to bring offerings in righteousness because they've been purified. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So again, what's the Messiah going to do in this passage? If you were sitting in the time of Malachi, looking forward to the first coming of the Messiah, what is he going to do? Well, it says he's going to purify the people. He's going to purify the Levites in specific. And remember, we talked last week about the fact that the Levites were the ones from whom the priesthood came. And he's going to purify them because just like anyone else, the priests have become apathetic. They've become corrupt in the time of Malachi. And that's what he's talking about. Remember, he talks about you're, you're allowing lame uh, sacrifices to come. How is that glorifying God? And you're divorcing your wives. How is that glorifying God? So the priesthood themselves had serious issues in the time of Malachi. So they need to be purified. They need to be changed. They need to be made new. And if you remember from last week, we talked about the fact that in Christ, there is a new priesthood. In Christ, we are that new priesthood. The church 
Those who are made clean and purified by Christ are the new priesthood. A priest, remember, is someone that is able to bring into contact God and human beings, the supernatural and the natural, bringing them together. And he says of us, Peter writes to the church, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you were not, not received mercy, but now that you have received mercy. And you may, may say, but Malachi says the Levites will be purified. This is where prophecy sometimes becomes a thing that we can get kind of caught up into. Our world vision or our understanding can be somewhat narrow. I don't believe Malachi and most of the Jews could comprehend the idea that they would ever, that the, that the blessing of God would ever go outside that chosen people to the Gentiles. I mean, that's the whole story about Jonah. God wants to have mercy on the city of Nineveh, and Jonah doesn't want God to have mercy on the city of Nineveh. Jonah wants this Gentile, non-Jewish city to burn. And in fact, the book of Jonah ends with the prophet Jonah being angry with God because God indeed had mercy on the city of Nineveh. And it sounds kind of funny to us that a person would like not want God to have mercy but they'd, they'd so set themselves apart, they were no longer a light to the world. They hated the rest of the world. Which, incidentally, sometimes Christians can act like. Christians can act like we're, we're set apart and we're this group of people and they are the bad guys. They are the ones we are against. And this is why the scripture makes it very clear. It's not against flesh and blood that we're supposed to be fighting against. But against the principalities and the spiritual realm. We're never to look at the world and go, they're the problem. Because we were all part of that at one point. And the, and the Apostle Paul talks about that very clearly. We once, that was us. We were the ones who were lost. So it's not our place to be angry and to hate the world around us. But this is kind of where the Jews had gotten. And so Peter says, you know, no, there's this new priesthood that's been formed. But before we could become a new priesthood, we had to become a new people. And so kind of backing up in 1 Peter, he says this. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed. Redeemed means bought back. It means we started in a place of life. We fell into a place of death. Redeemed means we were bought back from death into life. We were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again not from perishable seed, but of imperishable seed that cannot be destroyed through the living and enduring word of God. So this is important to understand. This is important to follow. If the people in Malachi's time wanted to go, if they wanted to be part of this prophecy, where there's going to come the Messiah who will purify them. And if they wanted to go from that to become this people described in Peter, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, 
then they had to be ready for the first coming of Christ. If they wanted to become this people that is indeed purified like gold, like gold and silver, purified so that the offerings of righteousness can be brought, purified so that the acceptable righteous, uh, offerings could be brought, if they wanted to be this people who are then described in Peter, where you've been purified, where you've been made right by God from a seed that's not perishable but imperishable, then they had to be ready for the first coming of Christ. This is important to understand. Because this relates then to us as Christians. And we know from history that even though folks were going to their temples, that religion was a, probably a bigger part of their life back then than it is part of people's lives today, that folks had studied this, that they were trying to imagine what it would be like, the vast majority of the people for whom Christ came rejected him. And we're not just talking about the Jews. We're talking about non-Jews as well. The scripture says he came first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. And the truth is, he was rejected by most. The Jews rejected him because he didn't fit within their certain parameters of what they thought it would look like. The Gentiles, the non-Jews rejected him because the idea that God would sacrifice himself for, for human beings, that he would die on a cross, which was a shameful way to die. It wasn't a piece of jewelry that people wore around their neck back in the day. It was a shameful way to die. That just didn't make any sense to them. That's why Paul says, for those who are perishing, the cross is foolishness. Because it's crazy to think that God would be willing to sacrifice himself. In the Greek mythology, people were sacrificed for the sake of the gods. You did things for them. God's never did anything for you. Europa. Europe is named after a woman whom the god Zeus kidnaps. And then ravages. Why, why they said, let's name our continent after this poor lady. That's still beyond me. But. And, the, and for, our, for our time, when we read the scriptures about the second advent, we find that the same lack of readiness is going to be in the world. Look what it says in Matthew 24. Again, we talked about this in depth over the last couple months. But it says this, At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. And the reason why it says the nations will mourn is because the nations who felt like they have the power to keep order and to keep this world running the way they want it to run are going to realize that that was all an illusion. And that the power and the order that they thought they had in their hand and under control is going to be just torn out of their hands. Because when Christ comes, there is going to be no hiding place from the judgment. There is going to be no hiding place from God. And no one is going to have the power to stand up to Christ and say, you have no effect on my life. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how powerful you are. I was, re I was uh, reading an article just this last week about this guy and whether or not this is uh, true or is it just something, but this guy, is a, he was a, uh, he's an expert in, he's a futurist in like what the future is going to bring. And he was saying that he was called to a meeting and he didn't give the names, but he said the top industrialists, the people who kind of run the world today. And you know what they wanted to know from him? 
They wanted to know that if everything collapses, how can they maintain control? And one of them already had him planned that when everything collapses, that there's a group of Navy SEALs that he'd already paid in advance to come and to go into this bunker that he's built and to protect his family. And the question that they had for this guy is, how can we keep these armed warriors under our control? And they were actually talking about things like putting explosive collars on these guys. Because when it all comes crashing down, the ones with the guns are going to win. And, the, and these Richie Riches knew that they couldn't stand up to these Navy SEALs. They wanted them to protect them from the, from the hordes, from us. But then when we were done, what's going to protect the Richie Riches from the Navy SEALs? So they talked about putting explosive collars on the guys. This is how people think. They're expecting to hold on to power. And they're going to mourn when the Son of Man comes because you're not going to put an explosive collar on Jesus. He's not going to be stopped. He's going to come. <laughs> and it's going, to be, it's going to be rough for those who are not in the Lord. He says this. This is a reminder. This is what he says. We talked about Matthew 24. Jesus says, no one knows about the day or the hour of his coming, not even the angels in heaven. Nor the Son, which is kind of interesting. We talked about that a lot when we went through the Bible study. But only the Father. And then he says this. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. In other words, life was going on. And everyone thought everything was fine. And he knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came. And took them all away. And it wasn't as though they hadn't been warned. Right? If you read the story, Noah had been warning and warning and warning and warning. Kind of like today. That's how it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken, the other one left. Therefore keep watch, because you don't know what day or the hour the Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known the time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch. He would not let his house be broken into. So you must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour which you do not expect him. You can't really prepare for something that you don't know when it's going to happen. All you can do is just always be ready. And for those who are ready, it says the nations will mourn to this time. But for those who are ready, whose hearts are turned to God, it's a whole different story. It's glorious. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This is what Jesus was modeling when he would heal people, when he would feed people, when he would raise people from the dead. It was the model of what was to come. The old order of things was passing away. So then the question for us is what side of God's recreation are we going to be on? What side of God's recreation are we going to be on? It's interesting the word recreation and recreation are the same. Depends on how you pronounce it. Will you be on the side of life? Or will you be on the side that's destroyed? 
And it's not really about God coming with a vindictive attitude about judgment. It's just that he's coming. And when he's coming, that unrighteousness will not be able to stand. It's not like he's coming to be vindictive. It's just a consequence of his presence is that unholiness is not going to be able to stand. In fact, Jesus says as much. But this is an important thing to get here. Israelites in Malachite's time, in order for them to be ready for the first advent of Christ, they had to be ready for the first advent of Christ in order to become this new priesthood, which we call Christians now. As Christians, we have to be ready for the second advent of Christ in order to be part of the new heaven and the new earth. And this is where these things run parallel, how Malachi is, in a sense, kind of a, a precursor to what we're going to experience. And don't forget, the people in the time of Malachi were saying the same things we hear in the world today. If your God's so great, where is he? If your God's so strong, why do bad things happen? If your God is really present, then what, what's taking so long? The people in Malachi's time were hearing the same thing we hear today. And it was 400 years after Malachi was written that Christ comes. But he came. And we need to remember that. Because very often as the church, we can grow apathetic. We can grow tired. We hear the same exact things being said. But just as he came the first time, he's going to come the second time. The Israelites in Malachi's time, and they had to be ready for that first advent in order to be the new priesthood. We're already there, most of us. But as Christians, we have to be ready for the second advent of Christ in order to be part of the new heaven and the new earth. And Jesus, when I said when he comes, he's not really necessarily coming with this, with this hammer. He's not being vindictive. Look how Jesus talks about judgment. He says, as for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. He doesn't judge him with a sense of personal anger. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. And what is that judge? We often think it's the Father, right? But Jesus says, no, here's the judge. The judge is that very word which I spoke. It will condemn him on the last day. Because the words that Jesus spoke were words of warning and were words of hope. But how you respond to them is how you're going to live. He says in a nutshell, Jesus just says, listen, this is how it's going to go. This is how it's going to be. I'm going to return, and in my return, there's going to be an accounting. The return is not going to be like the first coming, which was quiet and in a manger. The second coming is going to be loud, and it's going to have consequences. It's going to be a time when there is a separation of evil and good. Jesus talks about it in the goats and the sheep, right? I'll come and I'll separate people like goats and sheep. And in that coming, there's a reckoning based on the decisions that we make. You can think of it like this. Imagine that there's a train track and there's a, there's a station nearby. And that train has not run on that track for generations. And so people have started living on the track. They're like, ah, train hasn't come. Don't expect the train to come. You're just going to live on the track. And then one day someone comes along and says, hey, you know what? This train is coming. And if you will move from this track and you go upon this platform called faith, then when that train comes, 
you can get on board that train and it'll take you to a new and glorious place. But if you choose to stay on the track, then that very same train which is going to come and carry some of you to glory is going to be the very same train that runs some of you over. And it's not that the train has a personal vendetta against people on the track. It's just you didn't get out of the way. You chose to stay in the place of danger. The train that's coming isn't coming with anger and vendetta. It's just coming. It's just coming. The fact that it's coming is going to change the world. And if you're on the platform of faith, you get to ride in the glory. If you're on the track, you don't. It sounds kind of like a song, right? Some of you may have heard the song and may not realize how biblical it was. But listen to it. And of course, while we're on the air, I lose the, uh, I got it. <laughs> now nah, we're good. You just make me nervous now, man. <laughs> People get ready, there's a train that's coming, don't need no baggage to get on board, all you need is some faith to hear that diesel humming, you don't need no ticket, just thank the Lord. So people get ready, there's a train to Jordan Picking up passengers from coast to coast Faith is the key, open those doors and board them There's hope for all who love the Lord There ain't no room for the unrepentant sinner Hurt all mankind just to save his own But have pity on those whose chances grow thinner There's no hiding place against the kingdom's throne So people get ready, there's a train that's coming You don't need no baggage, just get on board All you need is some faith to hear those diesels humming don't need no ticket, just thank the Lord. Yeah, you don't need no ticket, just thank the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the fact that we are in a privileged place of being in between Advents. That we have the blessing of history to look back on. And realize that the warnings of your coming, they're nothing new to just the New Testament. They were there in the Old Testament as well. And may we be humble in realizing that there were people that were very dedicated to the idea of what it meant to know the Messiah when he would come, who missed it completely. And may we have hearts and by your spirit give us wisdom and discernment in knowing that when you come, for those who have chosen to stand on that platform of faith, it will be a wonderful time. A time where we ride into a new chapter of humanity, into glory. 
But for those who choose to stay on the tracks, that coming is going to be the end. And Father, may we pray for those. Like uh, Pragesh told us about this fellow that became, a, say, gave his life to Christ when they were in Cologne. And may he be encouraged. And may others who you have called, may they be encouraged that we don't give up, that we don't become apathetic, that we don't say, well, where is the Lord? What's the point of being part of his church? May we instead be ready, always ready for your coming. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.